listening to sermons from South Point Locust Grove, where we are equipping the family of God for the mission of God, to see everyone around us transformed by the gospel of Jesus. For more information, please visit southpoint.org. Really good to be here in Locust Grove this morning. Always great when me and my family get to come down and worship uh, here in Locust Grove and, and be with each and every one of you, uh, our brothers and sisters. And uh, it's just a, it's, it's a great to, to sing together, to worship together, to, to hear your voices lifted up. And it just always does our heart well um, to be here and be a part of that. Um, and just know that right down the road are uh, some other people who are just like-mindedly worshiping God and McDonough each and every week praying for you. And uh, it's just a, it's, it's one of the benefits that I get to have that I get to see kind of both sides every now and then. Uh, but it's just great to be here this morning. So thank you guys for, for uh, that opportunity. So this morning we're going to be continuing our series in Luke. We're going to be looking at Luke chapter 1, 5 through 56, if you want to go ahead and be finding that in your Bible. So I am, uh, I'm coaching soccer again, so I get roped into that again this year. I've been roped into it for a lot of years running now, but uh, I didn't know if I was going to be doing it this year. Still got roped into it, um, and I love it. I enjoy it. It's, uh, you know, it takes up some time, but you know, it's, it's a lot of fun, and, and I get to do it at Salem, which is cool because uh, part of it is opening up God's Word and sharing uh, some truths from, from Scripture with those students and get to have a little devotion every time. And this past week, uh, you know, for this year, one of the things I've, I'm going to try to do is a lot of times we try to, to make uh, some stuff from the Bible like a little metaphor about soccer. But this year I'm like, I'm going to try to make just soccer like a metaphor about God and His kingdom. So I was sharing like a, a passage from 1 Corinthians and we were talking about, specifically this past week, one of the things that struck me was we were talking about um, how we really have to, to trust each other. Okay, so we really have to trust each other when you're part of, part of that family, when you're part of God's kingdom. So we're talking about kind of trusting each other. And as I was going through that devotion and getting that ready for the week, I started thinking about the trust that we have in the body of Christ, the trust that we have, the faith that we have in Jesus, and how we're not really in a very trusting society or trusting culture anymore. In fact, I would say we're in a pretty cynical culture. Okay? It's, it's, it's wearing off on a lot of us. I would say. And, and as somebody who by nature is very cynical, I'm a pretty cynical person myself, I get it. I understand kind of looking at the world with skepticism, uh, wondering, like, what's they, what are they trying to pull over on me? You know, what are they, what are they trying to sell me? Uh, you know, who's behind this message that's coming out? That's just kind of the general way that I approach the world a lot of times. But as a believer... Uh, as much as I've looked for cynicism as a fruit of the Spirit, I cannot find it in there. You know, maybe a different translation. Maybe I need to get a different translation or something, but I can't find cynicism in there. So it's one of the things that I believe that, that God has been working in my heart and working in my life to try to, to root out. And again, it doesn't mean you, you are naive. Um, you know, we're supposed to be wise as serpents, but innocent as doves. But cynicism is not necessarily something that we as believers should be giving into, and especially in the midst of a very cynical, untrusting society. Because of that, I was looking up a few things uh, on trust this past week. I was like, let's look at a couple statistics on this. So from 2021 statistics. So looking at America, trust in government, as you can imagine right now, is very, very low, like below 25% of, of Americans say that they have any kind of trust in the government. 
And if you're uh, somebody who identifies as Republican, even lower, like less than 9% of people say they have any kind of trust in the government right now in 2021. In media, same kind of thing. Less than 50% of people in America say they have any kind of trust in the information that they're getting from the media. And again, if you're on the more conservative side, it's even lower than 30% have any kind of trust in the media. And then even maybe to, to turn it back around, I was like, I wonder, what, I wonder how they think kind of about the church or pastors. And I was looking, and, and it's less than 35% of Americans say they have any kind of faith or trust in pastors or clergy members. So less than 35% of Americans. And so, again, a pretty cynical, pretty untrusting sort of society. And I don't think that those statistics are probably going to be much of a surprise to anybody, but it still is something for us to think about, something for us to consider, especially when we're looking at a passage like this in Luke, where we have people who were asked to trust and have faith in God, even when they don't necessarily understand what's going on, even when they're in the midst of some circumstances that are not the best circumstances in their lives, even when the very fact of believing in God in the midst of it could cause some negative circumstances in their lives. And so uh, I want us to, to go ahead and, and open up uh, Luke in chapter 1, starting in verse 5, and we're going to see uh, what God's Word has for us this morning. So, in, And this is a, a bit of a long passage, uh, but we're going to just truck right along. So go ahead and if you got, just follow along in your, your uh, copy of God's Word, verse 5. It says, In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. And while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the customs of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense, and there appeared to him the angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb, and he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And Zechariah said to the angel, how shall I know this? For I'm an old man and my wife is advanced in years. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God and I was sent to speak to you and bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And the people were waiting for Zechariah, and they were wondering at his delay in the temple. And when he came out, he was unable to speak to them, and they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple, and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. And when his time of service had ended, he went to his home. 
And after these days, his wife Elizabeth conceived, and for five months she kept herself hidden, saying, Thus the Lord has done for me in the days when he looked on me to take away my reproach among the people. Okay, we're going to pause right there. So yes, we still are only about halfway through maybe. We're going to pause right there and break it up as we go today. Um, so before I get into this first passage here, the main idea that I want to get across to us today, the main idea that, that I think that, that God's Word is, is speaking to us through this passage, but there's one way to kind of sum it up, is that God delights in accomplishing His purposes through the poor, the weak, and the despised. God delights in accomplishing His purposes through the poor, through the weak, and through the despised. We're going to see in this passage we just, we just read um, about uh, Zechariah and Elizabeth, who were despised because of their inability to have children. Uh, and while in the inability to have children can still be uh, deep, can bring deep pain to us to this day, um, it isn't culturally seen as like judgment from God anymore as it, as it was back then. So you can imagine already the pain that is involved in being unable to conceive as many people already have to experience today, uh, but couple that with the fact that society as a whole sees that as a judgment from God on you. And so these were people who were very much despised and, and kind of looked down upon and just kind of questioned, you know, what, what have they done to, to bring this about in them? And so we, yet we see God choosing these people to bring about and fulfill his purposes. And we see also, and we're going to see in the, the next little bit of the passage we read, we're going to see Mary, somebody who's a young girl, who was not married yet, uh, had, not, uh, had not been married, and, and she's going to conceive. And even in our day, that's something that would probably raise an eyebrow a little bit, uh, less and less as time goes on. But in Mary's day and in this cult cultural context, this is serious trouble. This is serious trouble for her. This is a serious ethical problem. And not many people, as you might imagine, would necessarily believe her story that an angel had appeared to her and told her that she was carrying the Savior of the world. That's going to be pretty unlikely to a lot of people. And so, again, God choosing to work through difficult circumstances, because this is going to bring sorrow on her from the outside, from other people, from the way she's treated, from the way she's viewed by others, even probably from our own loved ones and family, potentially. And yet, in the midst of this, God's going to work some incredible things and accomplish His purposes. And so again, God delights in accomplishing His purposes through the poor and the weak and despised. The thing is, Elizabeth and Mary, they got that people were going to look at them this way. They got that they were kind of the poor the weak, and the despised. A lot of times the thing that, that I want us to see is we don't necessarily get that about ourselves. We don't necessarily get that God chooses to work through and use us in spite of ourselves. Uh, because at, we tend to, to feel pretty good about ourselves at times. We've said, you know, I'm, I, I can accomplish a lot. I can pull myself up by my bootstraps. I should be able to do these things. We don't want to show the world around us that we're needy, that we're weak, that we might be despised by others because of the choices we've made or because of our lives or because of the circumstances we find ourselves in. And so the thing that we have to come to in ourselves, and God brings us there sometimes. And, and if you've been there, you know exactly what I'm talking about, where God can sometimes bring us low and meet with us in the midst of that. Uh, but the challenge is for, the re for, for those of us at times when God hasn't necessarily brought us no low, to remember that apart from Him, we are nothing. 
We are the despised. We are the weak, and yet he chooses to work in us and use us anyway to accomplish his purposes. So the context for this passage, we have to remember that God has been silent for 400 years. If we look back at the very end of the Old Testament in uh, Malachi, we're going to see the very last couple of verses of the Old Testament Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, and lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. This is a prophecy that's fulfilled as, as the angel Gabriel comes and breaks the silence of God to Zechariah. He says, Elijah has come. The, the forerunner for the Messiah has come to reveal to these people, to turn the hearts of children back to their fathers and to, to announce the kingdom of God. This is a prophecy that's being fulfilled. But for us, it's the flip of a page. For them, hundreds of years has passed. And so that's something we have to, to, to keep in mind as we're looking at the faith of Zechariah and Elizabeth and Mary. So it's the fulfillment of this great Old Testament prophecy so Luke, we also understand, and we, we talked a lot about that last week, so we're not going to spend too much time on it today, but remembering Luke is a Gentile, and he's interpreting this Jewish tradition for a Roman audience. So we're keeping those things in mind. that he's, he's trying to explain to a Roman audience why this Jewish belief, this Jewish tradition is legitimate, is real, why, why he has chosen to trust it and why Theophilus should choose to believe it. And so this is the context he's placing this in. And so he's connecting the Old Testament prophecies with what's happening uh, with Jesus and the rest of this story. And he's kind of setting up almost poetically a lot of what's going to come later. I mean, you can trace this story, these first couple of stories, directly to the Beatitudes in just a few minutes where we see that who is it that God blesses? He blesses the poor and the weak and the lowly. And so we can connect that directly with the teaching of Jesus in this kind of introduction here. And so people of faith are confronted over this 400-year period with the silence of God, and suddenly God speaks into that silence. And he's going to speak in ways that they're not really ready for and in ways that they hadn't necessarily been anticipating. And so in this passage that we just read, we see this is the time of King Herod, Herod was really kind of a puppet king for the Roman Empire. He was not really considered a legitimate king by the the Jewish people here. And he served from about 37 to 4 B.C. And so this is towards the end of his time as as ruler. And um, the, the people of Israel, again, suffering under this silence of God, suffering under Roman oppression, which shows them that God is probably kind of displeased with them because they don't have their own land anymore. They don't have their own ruler anymore. And so they're kind of anticipating and waiting for this Savior to deliver them from Rome. They're kind of waiting for this Savior to get rid of Herod for them, who they don't, they don't like and don't see as a legitimate ruler. And in the midst of this, we see the characters of this passage, Zechariah and Hannah, who are, uh, who are shown to us to be faithful people who are both descended from a priestly class, okay? And so what Zechariah, as part of this priestly class, over the years, this priestly class has gotten really big and really large. And so what they would do is they would cast these lots, like have a little lottery, basically, to decide whose turn it was going to be to go into the temple and perform these, uh, these services in the temple, to burn this incense in the temple. And Zechariah, this is one of the greatest days of his life. If, you're, if you even get the chance to do that as a priest, you're going to get one chance, 
okay? So your whole life, this is a big part of your identity. He finally gets this chance. It's the only time he's going to be able to go and have this opportunity to serve. And yet we find him in the midst of this still um, under a cloud because of, because of their status, because of their, uh, these prayers that to them seem like they've been unanswered. Because again, we know the two of them early on, they probably were getting a lot of those questions. When are you, gonna, when are you guys going to have children? When are you guys going to have kids? But eventually the, the questions changed, and now people are looking at them with sympathy or people are looking at them with judgment because they're unable to conceive and unable to have children. It's a burden that the two of them have been bearing for years. As faithful people from this priestly class, we can imagine they spent a lot of time crying out to God, asking him to either reveal sin to them so that they could they could throw it off and follow him more fully, or asking them to please bless them with a child. But then as they got older, you can imagine that they probably at some point come to some sort of acceptance for this this place, this station in their life. And so when the angel Gabriel speaks to him and says his prayer has been answered, he probably has to take a second to wonder what prayer he's even talking about. Because this probably is not a prayer he's really even prayed in a while. And so sometimes God's answers to our prayers don't necessarily match up with our timing. And yet we see that this prayer has been answered and that this prayer has been answered by God and that God had a plan for it all along. And it's easy for us to be like, of course God had a plan. Of course he did. But you have to put yourself in in Zechariah's shoes 10 years into a marriage, 20 years into a marriage, uh, with people all around you who were once your friends who look at you differently now, uh, with your own questions about God, and then as you see that your wife is kind of past that time where that's going to be possible, and then ask ourselves, who among us wouldn't kind of question whether or not that was ever going to be an answered prayer for us? Or even if it was, the answer was probably going to be no. And so Zechariah as he's working in uh, the temple, is probably a little excited to be there and to do this, but a lot of his thoughts are consumed with his own doubts and his own frustrations at, at being childless. And Zechariah responds whenever he's delivered this message from the angel Gabriel that he's going to have a child. How? How shall I know this? Not necessarily how is it going to happen, but how can I trust you almost? How can I believe you? Uh, and so he responds in doubt, which is why we see uh, which is why we see Gabriel respond the way that he does. If your words are going to doubt the word of God, then we're going to allow God's word to speak, and you're not going to be speaking for a while. Okay, and so symbolically closing his mouth so that the word of God is the one that's going to stand. And we see somebody whose disappointments have made him bitter. His disappointments have made him doubt God. I heard one pastor say, your disappointments will either make you bitter or they will make you better. So we have a a weak and despised man who's frustrated and even in spite of his life of faithfulness so far, sees his doubts start to creep in and come out. So much so that a literal angel appears to him and he struggles to believe him. A literal angel appears to him and he struggles to believe him. So if you don't, well, one of the things we see here is if you don't have a solid theology or worldview, when, or a belief about God and his goodness, if you don't trust his promises, then when those sufferings come, when those difficulties come, then it's gonna, you're going to have a messed up beliefs about God and the world. 
Okay? It's not the time in the midst of the suffering to start trying to develop a good theology and a good understanding and a good trust of God. We have to be doing that before. So as parents, we have to be discipling our kids from an early age to trust God in spite of circumstances. When we go through circumstances in our lives, we have to show them that we trust him in spite of what's going on in our lives, in spite of our understanding or in spite of uh, the events that, that we're faced with or the circumstances around us. Because ultimately, when that time comes, that's when the truth is going to come out about what we truly believe or what we don't believe. So the angel delivers this uh, answer and, uh, the, for this prayer, pray long ago, likely had been abandoned, that he's going to have this son who's going to be this forerunner, the Messiah. Uh, he's going to be a Nazarite, so he's going to be set apart from birth to prepare the way of the Lord. And Zechariah's focus is very much on his problems and not on God. One of the things that, that uh, I saw uh, when I was looking at some of this is, I don't know if you know this, but you can actually, you can actually take a, a nickel, and if you go out in the middle of the day on a nice sunny day, if you put the nickel like close enough to your eye, you're going to block out the entire sun. Okay? You're not going to be able to see the sun at all. So you're going to have this little five-cent nickel, and if you get it close enough to your eye, you're going to block out the entire sun. So for us, with our circumstances, with our disappointments, with our, uh, the situations that we find ourselves in life, no matter what those are, if our focus is so much on those things, they can come a place where they can literally block out God and what he's trying to accomplish and what he's trying to do in our lives. If our focus is so, uh, so much on those problems and so much on those situations, we're not going to be able to see uh, God or his goodness in the midst of that. Um, we want, like Zechariah, proof. We want proof. We don't want to necessarily believe in faith. We want proof. We see it again and again throughout Scripture. I have to see it to believe it. Again, as a cynical society, that's so much how we are. I need to see it. I need to see the facts. I need to, 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 to believe this thing. One of the things it was reminding me of is, is if, you're, if you're a soldier in battle, you can, every single soldier is not given the full battle plan. Every single soldier is not delivered from the general, hey, here's exactly what we're trying to accomplish in every single phase of this plan. Every soldier is given, passed down, to the that's passed down to the next people, the parts that they need to know, and that's passed down to the next people, the parts that they need to know, all the way down to the soldier who's given, hopefully from a sergeant that he trusts or someone who's over him that he trusts, he's given, this is the part that we're supposed to accomplish, this is what your role in this is. And what he has to decide is, do I trust that person enough to do that? Do I, I don't know the whole plan. I don't know what we're trying to accomplish here. I have this role that's been given to me. Do I trust the, the person above me to believe and do what they say? And if you find that you're in a situation where you don't trust that person, well, that's going to affect the outcome. Okay? But very much like that, we don't necessarily always get to see the big picture. We're called to trust God in the midst of it and know that he has a plan for our good and for his glory that he's striving to fulfill. So the second, we, second thing we want to see uh, is that God accomplishes his purposes. And I don't think I ever, I didn't even, I didn't even ever said the first point, did I? So that first point with that one, we'll go back and say it. I'm bouncing, I'm jumping ahead. So the first point, the one we just kind of went through with this uh, 5 through 25, is that God accomplishes his purposes regardless of our beliefs. 
God accomplishes his purpose regardless of our belief. And then the second thing we want to look at now is that God accomplishes his purposes regardless of our understanding. God accomplishes his purposes regardless of our understanding. And so we're going to look at that in starting in verse 26. So verse 26. So it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph of the house of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. And this is the sixth month with her, who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. And so this second thing, God accomplishes his purpose regardless of our setting, uh, regardless of our understanding. And so looking at that setting, looking at that context, we're moving away from Jerusalem. We're moving away from the capital. We're moving to the north of Israel uh, to an area that has bad reputation, to an area uh, called Nazareth that is known as being kind of the the sticks uh, where nobody really good comes from. And so this is the area where Mary is in. And now it's not with a wise, you know, elderly, priestly couple. Now it's with a young teenage girl that this is going to happen. And yet we see a very different response. In some ways it seems kind of similar, but there's some key differences here. And we see it in the way the angel responds back to Mary and her response. So with her, it's not a lack of faith. It's just a lack of understanding. Okay? So she believes, she, she trusts what Gabriel says. She just doesn't understand how it's going to happen. And so he explains it to her. And so the thing that we know is that God, in spite of our understanding, is going to accomplish things. So in, in, in ways that, that don't necessarily make sense, in ways that don't fit with our preconceived notions or with our plans of things, that God is going to accomplish his purposes. So again, someone who is weak, despised, a young uh, Virgin people might say, oh, how is she a virgin? She's, she's pregnant. We don't necessarily believe her story that she says. So despised because of this, damaged in her reputation because of this. And yet Mary is going to conceive and give birth to the one who's going to fulfill the ultimate Old Testament prophecy and be the Savior of the world. So Mary's response, not one of unbelief, but one of a lack of understanding. So even when we don't understand, our confidence is in God and his word and not in our understanding. Even when we don't understand, our confidence is in God and his word and not in our own understanding. There's so many times where we may be reading scripture, or we may be trying to apply it to a situation in our lives where we just don't understand how he's going to accomplish his purposes or how he's going to be able to bring anything good out of a certain situation. We don't understand how he could be working things out for our good in the midst of this difficulty or in the midst of this loss that we've faced. And yet, We're challenged by Mary and challenged through Scripture to trust in God and his word 
in spite of that lack of understanding. Think about someone like Abraham. We could use a lot of different examples from the Scripture, but I think about someone like Abraham, and I love what the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews 11, verse 17. He said, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, Through Isaac shall your offspring be named, He considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which, figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Now, again, Abraham, somebody who's in a similar situation, if anybody can kind of relate to Elizabeth and Zechariah or Mary, it's Abraham who, again, had no business having children at his age, and yet God tells him, you're going to have a mighty nation. You're going to be the father of a mighty nation. I'm going to give you this son. He gives him the son. And then he tells him to go sacrifice him. So, so you're like, in our understanding, how am I going to believe and trust God in two things that I cannot reconcile? That I'm supposed to, to have the, I'm supposed to trust that God is going to make me into a mighty nation through Isaac on the one hand, and now I'm supposed to go and sacrifice Isaac on the other hand? Those things do not reconcile in any kind of earthly sense at all. And yet he says, well, you know what? God will raise him from the dead, I guess. Because I know that God wants me to do this, and I know that God's going to do this. And so even those things don't reconcile, God's going to make a way. And that's where Abraham's faith is. In the fact that even when things don't, there's no understanding behind it, and it doesn't make sense, he still chooses to be faithful to God in spite of it, even though he doesn't understand. There's a lot of things that, that I don't understand, <laughs> I don't understand. My, I, have a, I teach history at school, and my kids will ask me questions about math or biology all the time. I have no idea. I have no idea. I had a kid the other day who was about to go on an airplane flight, and they were like, Mr. Land, how does an airplane stay in the sky when it weighs so much? And I'm like, I got no idea. I have absolutely no idea. Go ask the science teacher, because I cannot tell you how an airplane stays in the sky. Some of you are probably like, you're really stupid, because it's like this and that. That's great. That's awesome that you understand that. I'm really glad we have people out there who understand it, but I don't know. And the point is, I've still flown several times. <laughs> I've still gotten on the airplane and flown, even though I have no understanding of it, because uh, of a couple things. I trust the people who made it. I trust the pilot who's flying it. And, you know, it's happened. People have made it back and forth from flying around before. So there's several things that go into where I kind of have faith that that airplane is going to get me from one point to the other. I got a pretty good chance, you know. Uh, so you just put your faith in that thing because you trust the people who made it and the people who are flying it. All right. So there's plenty of things I don't understand, and yet I trust that it's still going to be able to fulfill its purpose and accomplish its thing. So how much more should I not trust God even when I don't understand why he says what he says, or how he's going to accomplish his purpose in the midst of something. So there's things I don't understand. So, so practically, how can we start doing this? How can we start, uh, start trusting God and having faith in God when we don't understand? How can we start doing that? Well, first of all, you just start doing it, okay? It, that, when, I, don't, I don't love working out, but there's only one way to start doing it and start forming that habit, and that's to go out and do it. Okay, I don't. There, when we're trying to develop and build a new habit, the only way to start doing it is to to do it, and it's not going to necessarily come naturally to us at first. But thankfully, as if you're a believer, then you have the Holy Spirit who's going to begin to change your heart, begin to change your life, and to begin to form that character inside of you. 
So even if it doesn't feel natural to trust God at first, he's going to begin to build that up in you. So we start to trust him in the small things. We say, well, I think this thing would make me happier today, but I know God's word says that that's not what I need to be doing. I need to be doing this instead. So even though I don't feel like that, I'm going to start doing that today, and we'll see what happens, okay? And trust that God is going to do what he says he's going to do in spite of it. And then we start to build up towards some of those bigger things so that when life comes our way, when suffering comes our way, when loss comes our way, as we know that they inevitably will, those muscles that we've been building by trusting God and not our own understanding will, will, kick, into, will kick into high gear. And so we'll be able to, in the midst of it, trust God. I guarantee you, we, we've all seen people around us probably a lot in the past few years who, we, who we've seen, it's like, man, I don't know how they have the faith that they have in the midst of those circumstances in their life. Well, I guarantee you that's not the first time that they've trusted God. It, it, they've been trusting God. It just so happens that this is a very public and very difficult or very tragic situation, and now that trust is on display. And so, so we have to start building up that trust in the small things, building up that trust every single day so that when those difficulties come that we know will come or when the suffering comes, we will be prepared to trust God even when we don't understand. We're very much a people who like to, to get it. We like to see why. We like to, to understand what's happening, and, and then we'll make those informed decisions. And yet we're asked and called to trust God in spite of often our, our lack of understanding. And the other thing practical I think we can do is sometimes we have blind spots. And so we need to ask the people in our life groups or the people in our DNA groups, you know, what are some areas where I'm not trusting God? What are some areas where I can really uh, you know, put my belief in him or where, where I'm dependent on myself more than others and ask some other people that we trust to point out some of those things to us as well. And then finally, we're going to see today on this last section of scripture from this passage, the third thing is that our response to God's providence should be worship. Our response to God's providence should be worship. And by providence, we mean I love how John Piper defines it, God's purposeful sovereignty, God's purposeful sovereignty. And that's what we see on clear display in this passage is God's purposeful sovereignty. He has a plan, and he's in control. Okay? And there's times when we're not going to see the details of that purposeful sovereignty in action. If you're Zechariah, Gabriel doesn't give him all the answers. Uh, he doesn't give Mary all the answers. He explains some stuff to her, but he doesn't get, she doesn't get the full picture. How is this son going to be able to be the savior of the world? He doesn't lay it all out there. We don't see the big picture as the soldiers in the midst of that battle. Okay? We don't necessarily see everything, and yet uh, in the midst of it, they're able to trust in God's goodness and God's character as his purposeful sovereignty is at work. So again, the thing we have to ask ourselves is not do I understand the whole plan, but do I trust God? Do I trust God's goodness? Do I trust his love? Has his word proven true again and again in my life? What are those ways that he's worked things out for goodness in my heart and in my life and in my family's lives? How can I trust a good God in the midst of these circumstances and situations and trust that he does have a plan and he is working, to, he is working things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purposes in the midst of these circumstances? And so as soon as we uh, end with Mary, we see, picking up in verse 39, in those days, Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country to a town in Judah, and she entered the house of Zechariah 
and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And why is this granted to me that the mother of my Lord should come to me? For behold, when the sound of your greeting came to my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her from the Lord. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed, for he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name, and his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He's helped the servant of Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. And Mary remained with her about three months and returned to her home. And so what an incredible scene we see here. Um, there's a lot of things you might imagine as a young girl goes to a relative to reveal that she's pregnant out of wedlock. But this scene of worship can only be brought about by God, okay? This is not what you might necessarily expect to see in this culture and context in this situation. And yet, when Mary travels uh, to, to visit her uh, pregnant cousin, they erupt into joy at God's favor and his plan for them. And we normally think of, of Peter as the first person to confess Jesus as Lord, but we see very clearly here in this passage that it's actually Elizabeth who's confessing while Jesus is yet in the womb that he is Lord. And God's plan is revealed, and Mary and Elizabeth worship God for his goodness. And you can imagine in this circumstance, especially for Mary, there's a lot to be worried about. There's a lot to be concerned about. How is this going to work? You know, what's my fiancé going to do? How is my family going to think about this? How is my community going to think about this? What's my life going to be like? What's my son's life going to be like? You know, neither, even, not thinking in, not, even not taking into consideration the fact that this angel has said he's going to be the savior of the world, and what does that mean for him and for his life? And so all those concerns that would naturally be on her, instead we see her glorifying and worshiping God for his purposes and for his plans in the midst of their circumstances in this situation. What an incredible testimony. And so we see her pointing all the honor and all the glory back on God in the midst of this. It's not, uh, so she, she says, uh, blessed am I among women, for he's done great things to me. But then he says, for he has done this, for he has glorified his name, for he has had mercy, for he has had mercy from generation to generation. He has shown his strength. He scattered the hearts of the proud. He fills the hungry. Again, the glory is deflected back onto God as she's worshiping him. And I love verse 45, uh, where she says, Blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken in her from the Lord. And again, we see that people, the people of God are marked by their faith. They're marked by that belief that they have. The passage in Hebrews 11 that we were looking at, why are these people great? Not because of the great things that they did, but because they trusted in God's goodness. 
because they had faith in God and what he was trying to do. And why is Mary great? Because she worships God and trusts him in the midst of this situation, in the midst of these circumstances. So it's this faith that makes her kind of unique and special in the midst of this, her faith in God. And so her focus is not on the problems, her focus is not on her sufferings, but her focus is on the Lord. And we're in the midst of a, of a circumstance right now um, where a lot of people are suffering, where a lot of people are struggling, where a lot of people that, that we know uh, have suffered with uh, a virus, suffered with COVID, suffered even many of them passing away and dying. You know, I uh, had a, found, the, found out on Saturday that uh, a guy who had been my, my Sunday school teacher all through high school um, had passed away from COVID, had lost a, a couple weeks long fight uh, from this, this horrible uh, virus. And, you know, the first thoughts that, that popped into my mind uh, were, were not like, oh man, I wonder what, he, what his ideas about wearing masks were. It wasn't, oh, I wonder what his, you know, ideas about vaccination were. My first thoughts when I, I found out about this was, man, this was somebody who loved God and loved me enough to take a bunch of time when he didn't think he was going to be very good at it and yet just genuinely invested in my life for a long time when I was a kid. And that's what I remember about him, and that's what I'm thankful about uh, with him. Um, so it's, it's a brother in Christ who was faithful to the Lord and who was faithful to his family and who was faithful to serve, even though he's like, man, I don't know anything. I don't know how to teach teenagers. And yet uh, he did that because it was nobody else, and he stepped in to fill that gap. And I'm very thankful for the impact that he had on my life. And in the midst of that, that's what I think of. And we get caught up in, in so much other junk that goes along. And yet as the people of God, we should, again, remove the little nickel from our eye <laughs> so that we can see the glory of God, so that we can be captivated by who God is and what he's doing in the midst of all of this. We should be united in our love for God and our love for one another in the midst of this circumstance. And I had, I had another friend who, um, who is a partner here, um, partner in McDonough, and she had a, a close friend who, who uh, passed away, lost a long fight with COVID again on Friday. And she sent me a message. She had written a lament that she's going to give to, to his family. And I actually, when, when she wrote that and sent it to me, I was studying for this sermon, and all I could really think about was, man, like Mary, she's like in the midst of this circumstance, and all she wants to do is worship God. And I thought, what an incredible testimony for that. I asked her if I could, could share that with you guys this morning, and uh, she said that I could. And so, so this is what she wrote. She said, a lament for my friend. You tell me to count it joy, but I don't know how the earthly tent of my friend is gone. A relationship measured in decades, faithfulness, befriended solidarity, embodied hope, communal, confounded separation. My God, where is your goodness? My soul cries from the depths, why? Deep calls to deep. All your waves and breakers have swept over me. How do we count this as joy? My, dead my downcast soul wavers with a glimmer. You remind me of where I first saw the light. Author of faithfulness, befriended God in flesh, embodied solidarity, enduring slaughtered lamb, with eyes fixed on the joy set before you. Victorious, glorious, joyous morning. Seated now at the right hand with a great cloud of witnesses, my friend, amongst that procession with shining countenance, communal hope of the eternal kind. What we had. What we have, those of us left in these tents, we will count it joy.
because you endured for the joy. And as I thought about that, just that incredible faith in the midst of loss, in the midst of suffering, what an incredible testimony of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, in the midst of whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, to glorify God in the midst of that. Trusting God means loving Him more than anything else and following Him in the love, that, the self-sacrificing love that He had for His people. And so I, I, my prayer is that in whatever circumstances we find ourselves in, in the circumstances we're in right now, in the situations we find ourselves in on a day-to-day basis, in the specific circumstances of our lives, that we will be marked and known by our faith in God and the love that we have for one another. It means not focusing on the suffering and the circumstances, but instead turning our focus to God. And so a couple of last little takeaways that I'll share with you as we transition today is, is first of all, we need to take our eyes off of our problems. And I truly understand that that's not always easy because this is not something that I'm standing here saying, look, this is easy to do, and I'm a pastor, so I can tell you. This is God speaking to me as well, that it's so easy to focus on my problems, uh, so easy to eat from the little things to the big things. And yet God is calling us to take our eyes off of those things and put them on him, to focus on Jesus and his goodness and his glory so that in the midst of losing a loved one, we could declare the greatness of God. So that in the midst of circumstances that Mary finds herself in, we can declare his goodness and, and we can respond in worship and gratitude in the midst of it. And second of all, we should seek understanding, but seek understanding in faith understanding that we won't necessarily always have all the answers. There's nothing wrong with wanting to understand. There's nothing wrong with searching the scriptures and asking God to give us understanding, and yet constantly letting that be tempered by the faith that we have in God, and that if, if we don't necessarily understand, that that's okay, that that's okay. And then finally, responding to God with lives of worship, with lives of offered as sacrifices to him, uh, offering both our songs and our words, and our praise, and in our daily lives to him as sacrifices because of the love that he has for us. And so because of his goodness, and because of his greatness, and because of what he's done, and because of who he is, responding to God with lives of worship. So at South Point, one way that we respond to God in worship is through communion each and every week. And so uh, at this time, um, so that you guys know, and I think it's pretty much the same at McDonough as it is, uh, is here at Locust Grove, there are some stations in the back of the room and in the front of the room that have uh, both bread and grape juice. And as God's family, in remembrance of the sacrifice that he's made for us, we take a piece of that broken bread that symbolizes his broken body, and we dip it into that juice that repre- represents the, the spilled blood of Jesus on the cross. And we remember the sacrifice that he made for us, the ultimate display of his love, the ultimate end and goal of this whole thing that we were reading about today was ultimately the salvation of God's people through his son, Jesus Christ, who Mary finds out that she is carrying and who John leaps from within inside uh, Elizabeth and Elizabeth declares is the Lord from the very beginning. And that Lord laid down his life to die on the cross for our sins so that we could be reconciled to God a plan that for many people they didn't understand, but we can thankfully see clearly revealed to us through God's word.